1: Welcome in. This is the Tuesday Not-So-Deep-Dive episode on Chit Chat Money. Today, we're going to be talking Farfetch Limited, right? Limited is is on the end there. Whatever. It's I think it's far- yeah, I think it's
0: got Limited in the name.
1: Yeah, Farfetch. Either way, it's just going to be me and Ryan today. No outside guest, uh, but we will have Brad back on next week, I believe, talking Lululemon. But we're going to let Ryan talk about the company. Who's pick? This is my pick. I believe, I guess I just picked it because it was down 90%. We're going to revisit it. We did talk about it, I believe a year ago and the valuation was quite steep, but I, that was because it was caught up in the Archegos, um, what was that type of deal? Or they, they they were just bidding at Liquidation, I guess? No, liquidation, the run-up and the liquidation if you look at their stock price. Um, yeah, so last time we talked, we were like, wow, this is quite expensive. I wonder what's going on. Turns out there was an artificial or there was an outside source making that happen. But I'm going to let Ryan reintroduce the company because it is quite complicated. But first, let's talk about our sponsor today. This episode is brought to you by Stream by AlphaSense. Stream is an expert interview transcript library that has been integral to our research process. They cover all industries, including TMT, which is you know telecom, media, technology, consumer stuff, industrials, real estate, and plenty more. They have over 300 expert interviews per week. And so how this works is that someone does an expert interview, stream records it, and then uploads the transcript to their service. So if you're a professional investor and you want access to a lot of these transcript libraries with investors and you want to get up to a speed with a company, say like Farfetch, or any of the other companies that we've covered on the show, I'm sure they have transcripts on there. You can find them at streamrg.co slash CCM. The link is in the show notes. That is S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G dot C-O slash C-C-M. All right, Ryan, do you want to introduce Farfetch?
0: Yeah, and Farfetch is a good example of a company where we were kind of talking about this beforehand. An expert interview would be quite helpful because there's a lot that's going on with the business. That's a little m- murky, I guess, difficult to understand. Um, so I'm going to try to explain the business the best I can. Um, so Farfetch is a luxury e-commerce platform that basically lets brands and con- uh, and and retailers uh, distribute their products to consumers around the globe. And they take a 30% commission that's sort of on average to do so. Uh, and they're essentially three elements to the business. So the, the, the first is the Farfetch Marketplace. The second is Farfetch Platform Solutions or FPS. And then the third, I I just basically call it their own own retail brands, which is their, exactly what it sounds like. It's their own businesses uh, or luxury retailers. Uh, but as for the Farfetch Marketplace, there are more than 1,400 sellers on the platform, more than 3,500 luxury brands, and one big selling point. So they are not, it's not Farfetch's, Luxury goods. Some of it is, but a lot of it is other brands and sellers. And, and so,
1: all, none of the brands that they own are marketed as Farfetch like stuff. That's just
0: the right. They're in. they have different names, but the uh, big selling point for brands to join the Farfetch platform is that Farfetch allows them to maintain control over their own brand. So they allow them to set uh, or determine what they sell, determine how they sell it, and set the prices. So. Uh, you don't have to do heavy discounting if you don't want to basically you have control over your own brand which is that was a big differentiator when it came to uh the their platform compared to others and i saw someone basically describe it as a shop within a shop for a lot of these luxury brands um so it's a, it's a Great distribution point. Obviously, uh, Farfetch has access to millions of customers. I think as of latest quarterly reports, 3.8 million active customers around the globe. So that's part of why there's this attractiveness from a seller's point of view. And then the second one is the Farfetch platform solutions or FPS segment. This was a little difficult to get a grasp on, but the way I understand it, they call it their white label enterprise offering. So whenever I say white label, I'm basically, I had to re-look up this term just to define it properly, but it's a product or service produced by a company that other companies can rebrand to make it appear like their own.
1: Similar to Shopify, right? That's
0: exactly what I was going to say. Sort of a Shopify-like solution for the luxury uh, brands. And it helps them in, with a few different things running their shop online, but it includes optimizing their inventory, activating global payments, um, helps with digital marketing and customer service. But then one really big factor is that it helps them easily tap into farfetch's the farfetch marketplace and their Mall marketplace so uh, farfetch has a strategic partnership with alibaba and the big uh marketplace over in china is Mall. and so they have a custom storefront or a flagship store on alibaba's tmall platform so there's five tabs in the, the way i last thing I heard about it was there's five big tabs on the Tmall luxury platform. One of those is Farfetch's solution. And the Chinese luxury market is really, really big. I believe it counts for mid-teens percent of Farfetch's volume. So uh, it gives brands that traditionally wouldn't have access to that giant Chinese customer base, uh, uh, obviously a new uh, new group of customers to sell to. And then the last thing I'll say is the, uh, the third segment of their business, this is their own brand. So they, this includes Brown's, which is a British fashion and luxury goods retailer stadium goods. This is a premium sneaker retailer well,
1: uh, stadium goods. I think I may need to correct you. I think it's more of a marketplace, but with, for sneakers. Really? Yeah. I believe I'm so. Sure. Let me just confirm, but that's, uh, yeah.
0: Okay. Uh, but, it, but it's wholly owned by Farfetch. Farfetch owns it, um, yes. And then there's also an additional component called New Guards. They do the manufacturing and distribution for several other brands, uh, popular ones, probably people will recognize Off-Whites. Um, and then there's un- several others under that umbrella. Um, and I, I know Brett, you're gonna talk about that in a second. So I'll, I'll let you do that for your future growth opportunity, but that is the basics of the business. I hope I gave a good, uh, understanding of the marketplace they did not break out how they generate revenue on fps so i would assume they're just plugging in they're they're basically just taking that same take rate on transactions on the platform i don't know if they sell the software for a certain price or or if there's like a required subscription Uh, they did not talk about that in their annual report i will talk about the history briefly though there isn't anything that's too fascinating about it. The the idea was born in 2007. The Farfetch website went live in 2008. The CEO is Jose Neves. He's had several stints in the fashion industry prior to founding Farfetch. Um, And he's a Portuguese entrepreneur. And there were five people on the team when it started. I think there were 40 brands total on the platform. So it was pretty small. Uh, The company's headquartered in London. They've got branches everywhere. Other relevant uh historical moments that they acquired browns in 2015 went public in 2018 2019 they acquired both stadium goods and new guards and then in 2020 they announced their partnership with alibaba and richmond or richmond i'm
1: not sure how to say that one but that's one of the luxury houses
0: that was and not only it gave them access to timo but alibaba and richmond invested in farfetch as a part of that so they got some Capital as well. And then in 2021, uh, New Guards acquired a stake in Palm Angels, which is basically another luxury fashion brand. And then uh, two months ago, they acquired a company called Wana, which is a virtual try-on technology company. So um, trying to get into the AR game, it sounds like, uh, which maybe creates higher conversion uh, on on luxury e-commerce.
1: Yes, that's very... A lot of fashion companies, at least the new age one, seems to be doing similar stuff, exploring augmented reality. Oh. As they say, we'll see what the return on that invested capital will be. Uh, but- yeah.
0: There were a lot of, quote unquote, strategic partnerships throughout their history with various companies and brands that use uh, Farfetch's platform, which it was difficult to parse through. But
1: Yes, very, very messy. So messy. So many things, so many moving parts going on, even though the business isn't that complicated, all the things that are acquiring just tons of different names, really hard to understand. Uh, all right. I'll hit industry and competition. Interesting one to go after here. Luxury goods market is valued at about $243 billion of this year or expected to be valued at about $243 billion this year. And it's expected to steadily grow each year through say the next five years. Now, farfetch itself estimates that chinese demand will be about 100 billion dollars a year by 2025 so that's i think by that point it will be the largest market in the world at least from country size maybe europe uh, on its own is a little bigger but yeah 100 billion dollars versus a say 200 something to 300 billion that it might be in 2025 that's a good chunk and that's why they've done that partnership with alibaba they actually originally had a partnership with JD.com, but I guess JD.com is too um, Amazon-like and too—it's uh, not really, it doesn't have the, the luxury shopper style, so it didn't really work out, so they switched over to Alibaba. Um, and then also, Farfetch itself expects around 70% of luxury goods will still be bought in physical stores in 2025. So flipping that, it's on its head, that's 30%. They expect to be bought online and it's slightly higher, closer to 80% currently. That means there's a solid, say, tens of billions. If we want to be just have some room for error, positive or negative here, there's tens of billions of potential GMV or gross market value or the amount of dollars that could be potentially spent on Farfetch's platform to go after by 2025. And I'm sure it'll incrementally get higher by then. Now, if we want to move into competitors, there are also D2C offerings. Now, Now, these are the ones that are not using... Fulfillment by or what is it called? I call it fulfillment by Farfetch. That's what I'm gonna call it, but
0: it's uh Farfetch platform solutions. Okay, so platform solutions, solutions business.
1: Okay. So say a D2C site that's a luxury house um, that's selling online that is not using any far technology that is definitely a competitor. They are taking online luxury spend. There are website builders like a Shopify, definitely has some fashion brands on there. Um like the Kardashians use that, I believe that's the stuff that yeah. Shopify hypes up a lot. Uh, physical stores are competitor, although some of their own brands have physical stores, but reality, the physical shopping experience at a, say Louis Vuitton or wherever, that's competing with demand on the for the Farfetch platform. And then there are other websites that do similar stuff to them. One would be forward.com. Um, there's other marketplaces. They have strange names. When saying them in English, because they uh, a lot of them are Chinese, but they're Shopbop, Ux Group, My Teresa, I believe, is a European one, and then there's a few others. Amazon Luxury has also made a push, but frankly, I don't see them as a competitor, just because similar to a JD.com, you don't, and, do you, and maybe you agree or disagree here that Amazon isn't the right marketplace to sell luxury product, and that's just not the the efficiency. You know, you know what I mean. I agree. Okay,
0: it's not. It there's a. It would be counterintuitive to what they are supposed to be, which is the cheap online retailer. And you're not really shopping for luxury goods to find some bargain. You're not bargain hunting. Yeah, and I think there's a stigma for, too. Yeah,
1: you're not shopping for Ralph Lauren. Is that he said? Ralph Lauren at yeah. uh,
0: Walmart. The other thing I'll say is some of the really big ones. I think. Louis, Louis Vuitton or LVMH and uh, Hermes, I believe, have built it out in house.
1: Hermes but, is a part of that house, yeah.
0: But then some of the other ones, a lot of the, a, a lot of even big companies like Gucci have opted to use Farfetch's uh, solutions instead. Yeah,
1: and I thought I saw some LVMH ones using Farfetch's solution, but again, uh, we're saying like a lot of these confusing things and. They are a bit um, unclear on who because, some of their customers are.
0: Well, you can be, you can use certain far-fetched solutions without being considered like a big far-fetched customer.
1: Gotcha.
0: So it's kind of hard to categorize everyone as a customer, but do you want to hit management and ownership?
1: Uh, so I have one more thing on uh, industry. So there's some evidence out there that Farfetch has definitely the best technology and brand in the space. So Richmond, who, if we're pronouncing that wrong, apologies, but it's if you spell it out, it's one of the big luxury houses. They were in discussions with Farfetch to let Farfetch power uh, this marketplace called Net-A-Porter, which is a competing marketplace that had the same sort of idea of Farfetch luxury good marketplace, e-concession online, and they were going to let Farfetch uh, FPS, I'm gonna call it FPS, I can't remember what it is, and bring uh Richmond's brands onto the Farfetch marketplace. So it'll it seems like Richmond kind of gave up on that. And it looks like Farfetch doesn't have any direct competitors, and it's all gonna be the DTC, the D2C, um website builders, maybe some of the other ones, and then physical, but the other marketplaces, it seems like they kind of a, a little bit of escape velocity there. But let me move to management and ownership. Founder, chairman, and CEO is Jose Neves. Like Ryan mentioned, he started the company in 2008, has been involved in the luxury business for looks like all his working life. He's about 47 years old, which I like to look at because uh, I think in the 40 to 60 range is kind of the optimal one for me, maybe even 45 to 60 for a CEO, just because you have the experience, but you still got a long runway ahead of you. Um, important board of directors. There's Jay Michael Evans, who's the president of Alibaba since 2015. I don't think this means he's running the company um, because Jack Ma was running the company for a while there. But he is—I believe he's Canadian. He worked at Goldman Sachs. Important to have that relationship and having them on the board. Victor luis was the ex CEO at Tapestry, which has Coach and Kate Spade. And then Jillian Tans uh, was the ex CEO of Booking.com. Solid board of directors all around. However. This is all about Neves, given his voting control. I'll get to that in the ownership part next. But another important person to maybe research and see if you can find anything on is, uh, this is a tough name, the CTO's chief technology officer, Cipriano Souza, uh, spelled with a C. He's been with Farfetch since the beginning, kind of treated as a co-founder, and he leads all the technology efforts. They really focus on this technology build out as their advantage, and he's probably the second most important executive. Ownership, it's the most important part here is that Nevis owns approximately 14% of shares outstanding, but has 70% plus voting power given the Class B stock. He has all the Class B stock, I believe. He also has a stock plan that will pay him out a lot of shares if the price reaches $75. And then with different hurdle rates up to $250, current share price is around 10 So pretty uh, good hurdles there, but that's because the stock has come down a lot too. Uh, Morgan Stanley has 11% of shares. Bally Gifford has 9% of shares. And Lone Pine Capital has 5% of shares. Uh, T Row Price actually owned a huge chunk, but recently has sold 20 million shares, which could have been a reason why the share price is down so much in the past few months. Then, lastly, Alibaba and Richmond both own convertible notes at $33 strike prices. I want to kind of do a little discussion here. Does this provide good incentives for creating shareholder value to have those? convertible notes at those strike prices with those specific companies.
0: Yeah, uh, definitely. And they also own combined a 25% stake in uh, Farfetch China, Farfetch China, which is a subsidiary of Farfetch, I guess. Um, It was a little difficult to parse that out, but uh, so they have a huge Alibaba and Richemont, even though it's not a, Giant part of their business have very much a financial incentive for uh, uh, Farfetch to succeed.
1: If Farfetch can become a thirty million dollar market cap business, they will do well as well. Yeah, and and it's a lot of it is driven by bringing Richfund's brands on and Alibaba doing well in the Tmall marketplace. However, I would think Alibaba's so big. Is this a giant priority for them? You know, uh, there's such a big tech company that telling out their number one focus.
0: This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Here you are, miles from home, and ready to start your vacation. Good thing you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. They have free high-speed Wi-Fi to stream all your favorite movies. And in the morning, get fresh waffles with their free bright side breakfast. Or squeeze in a workout at their fitness center. Either way, you're ready to conquer the day. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you triumph. Book your stay at LQ.com. Yeah, great.
1: All right. Valuation. valuation? Yeah. Yeah. Valuation. We'll do this quick. Market cap $3.4 billion tickers FTCH. Enterprise value is actually closer to $3 billion after considering borrowings and cash. However, as we'll maybe discuss later and Ryan will discuss on the balance sheet, there are lots of tricky stuff. Lots of uh, just things that make me kind of go, hmm, when I'm looking at the balance sheet that I don't know whether to consider that in the enterprise value or not. But for this exercise, we're just going to consider it $3 billion. Enterprise value to sales is 1.3, enterprise value to gross profit is 2.92. So clearly it looks cheap if you think they can get to consistent positive cash flow. They're currently not. uh, So that's probably one of the reasons why. the, the stock looks so cheap. And then lastly, total potentially dilutive securities are $472 million versus $381 million currently outstanding. The difference is driven by a lot of options, RSUs, which are restricted stock units, similar to options, convertible notes, and far-fetched China. At a good table that in the 20F, which is their annual report, I would just expect, without making it too complicated, share count to kind of compound at 5% a year, which is some not the best compounding you want uh but ryan do you want to hit earnings
0: yeah so they're i guess just for context this quarter really sucked for them. Wow, it, was, okay. it was pretty Come terrible on. um well you'll see why it's kind of out of their control but the gross merchandise value or the gmv for their quarter was 931 million dollars that grew about 1.7 percent year over year that is a steep slow down from what they typically grow at um, and then revenue outgrew gmv slightly it was up six percent year over year um they had about 515 million dollars in revenue and so if you're comparing if you're thinking all right 930 million in gmv 515 million in revenue that sounds a lot well, that sounds like a lot more than their quote unquote 30 percent commission keep in mind that only about 72 percent. Of their total GMV comes from third parties. So that the remainder comes from either their own brands on the digital platform or their own brands in retail stores. So um those are not it's not a 30% take rate on those because it's true sales to their business. Um, and then they said that they said in their quarterly report that on the third parties or third party uh sellers, their take rate's about 32%. So still in line with the long uh Long run commission or average take rate. And then their total active customers reached 3.8 million this quarter. That was up 17% year over year. So pretty good. And the average order value increased from $618 to $632. That all sounds all right. And you're probably wondering like what's the low light? But uh the, the total amount of orders must have declined. They didn't report that number, but it must have declined. Um, and so They closed their operations in Russia, which was their third largest market. It represented 6% of their total volume. And then China is their second largest market. And as anyone who has companies that are uh, operating in China knows, uh, the, the zero COVID policy is shutting down a lot of the commerce in that market. And so a lot of the goods on Farfetch's platform are shipped from Europe to China. And so a lot of that incoming commerce has kind of been halted. And so that that forced those two factors pretty much forced Farfetch to adjust their full year outlook from thirty percent GMV growth to five to ten percent. That's not bad, all things considered. Um, but I I imagine that some of that is factoring in that China comes back online and starts to sort of reaccelerate. Which we're um,
1: seeing right now, but who knows?
0: Right, so it. I, I feel feel bad for whoever had to try to forecast their GMV growth for the year because it sounds like a difficult thing to do. They did burn through $341 million in free cash flow during the quarter. That we'll talk about on the balance sheet here in a second is not sustainable, but uh I believe there will be some improvements uh moving forward, seeing as they had to exit one of the markets this year and uh China was really tough on them during the quarter. Balance sheet. This was one of the most difficult tasks I've ever had. Um, I'll start with the relevant assets. So there are pretty much three items worth paying attention to on the asset side. They had $940 million in cash and cash equivalents, $99 million in short-term investments. So just over a billion dollars in cash and investments, and then $300 million in inventory. They have a lot in property plant and equipment, but that's not very, um, liquid. So I, I didn't really, uh, add it in here, but liabilities, um, really tricky so the bulk of their debt isn't due for at least three years but over the last two years farfetch farfetch has issued several rounds of convertible notes at various interest rates um, they categorize and i think most recently they did 600 million dollars at zero percent so good on them but uh, and i think that was a little over a year ago they categorize these as quote unquote borrowings on the balance sheet but then there's also Another associated liability on there called derivative financial liabilities um, that they have as well. I was having a difficult time reading through this, but it said as of the most recent quarter, Farfetch reported $530 million in non current borrowings and $330 million in derivative financial liabilities. I and believe non
1: current borrowings are all, all convertibles, correct?
0: Yes. Okay. Uh, unless there was like one tiny. Uh, debt issuance, but I didn't see any in the 20F. And I also think in the derivative financial liabilities, there's also currency hedges that are in there as well because they get a lot of, they derive a lot of revenue in different currencies. Um, and then they've also entered into several put and call option contracts with various companies, including Alibaba, Richemont, Chalub Group, and and some other small ones. I think they just did one with Palm Angels too. These contracts allow the counterparties to take Additional stakes in Farfetch at predetermined dates and prices. So these these contracts get recorded as liabilities based on the on the fair value of whatever the stock is at that date. But as their stock has come down, the liabilities on these have come down. So um, as of Q1, they had almost four hundred million dollars in put and call option liabilities. The that is down substantially from last year. Um, it's hard to tell. Where they are where, where this is callable debt, I guess, like what where this is going to hurt them as opposed to just getting turned into stock. Um,
1: yeah, it seems like the mo- majority of these liabilities will come in the form of dilution, but we will see depends on where the stock is.
0: Yeah, I would think so. And then there's one last thing that really kind of concerned me, and this is probably the biggest red flag from the balance sheet. Um, they had another line item. On, in their liabilities called other financial liabilities, which is very vague. I keyword searched this on the 20F, which is 282 pages long. So I would have thought there'd be something in there. There wasn't. Um, there was no definition of what that was. And during the three months that comprise the first quarter, so from January 1st to March 31st, the the quote unquote, other financial liabilities jumped from $13 million to $345 million. So they just added uh, essentially $330 million of liabilities that I don't know what they are. Um, maybe that's me missing something, but it was just a very difficult balance sheet to understand. Yeah, Probably would have taken a week for me to fully grasp it.
1: I agree The that other financial liabilities thing popped out to me as well. Definitely the biggest red flag, considering that it's moved so quickly. Um, and it's not really that there's an other financial liabilities on the balance sheet, it's that it changed so much. And I, I would just wonder what that is. All right, anecdotal evidence.
0: This episode is brought to you by KPMG. As a business leader, how can you innovate, build trust, and move forward in a digital era? KPMG can help by bringing together the right talent and technologies, generating insights that spark opportunities. To explore their thinking, visit read.kpmg.us/slash opportunities. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll: Less work, more clean. Terms apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder.
1: Any thoughts here? I know we're both not shoppers on the marketplace, but.
0: I thought the website looked pretty good. um, The the Farfetch website. And the other thing that, um, this is a point that, Dennis Hong who's a popular investor that we follow and and he read a lot of his writing he he brought up this good question which is is this true luxury shoppers or is it aspirational luxury shoppers on the platform in kind of filtering through the website i would think this is true luxury
1: well they are what about that stat that 1% of their shoppers are twenty seven percent of their GMB. those seem like the true luxury shoppers, and there's also you know probably some aspirational ones on there as well
0: I just uh, don't see i don't know there were like eighty thousand dollar watches on there i don't think you could fake that
1: oh some of the stuff is only like five hundred dollar jackets or something yeah so I guess not all of it's super super but expensive it, but they do have the top notch as well
0: it's an important uh, it's an important question to ask because it determines whether it it's sort of uh, whether or not it's going to do well in a recession. I think is kind of determined on whether or not these are truly high income shoppers. Um, Ultra typical, yeah, who are here, who, more of your Ferrari customer as opposed to maybe your B&W? restoration hardware or RH. That <laughs> well, I was going to go auto
1: and say the BMW customer. Yeah, um, sure. but. I think one positive in that regard is their private client business. So they started that up a lot where say these 1% of shoppers that uh, contribute 27% of GMB, they are giving them uh, like one-on-one services with what do you even call them like um, guides or who is your
0: shopping guides? Like who's the
1: person in the store that your concierge not, and it's not concierge your shopping guides is a good word. Sure, I think there's there's a specific word, but the, yeah. So they're doing, they're replicating that and giving this one-on-one touch that's even elevated. Uh, and you, uh, it's elevated beyond their traditional loyalty program, which I think is called access. So you can only graduate to the private client if you spend a certain amount. So I do like that strategy of being the exclusive top talent on there, not top spending the whale on there, which seems ridiculous if you're an investor thinking about this, but that's kind of how the luxury status games uh, seem to work. Um, But I'll hit my anecdotal evidence. I download the app, seems fine, worked well. Didn't buy anything, huh? No, uh, (laughs) I did not. I laughed uh, looking at all the $500 stuff. Um, Seems- Shoes. Yeah. $500 $500 socks. Although I did, I did try to look at some of their owned portfolio. They were promoting some of the new guards group stuff. So that was interesting. It's probably a smart move. Um, one thing I didn't like though, was how they had a 50% discount pop-up right when I downloaded it. And I that doesn't that. seem like the, the the brand strategy that you want for luxury. Um, that was the only downside I saw. I like the loyalty program and the agents thing that they were stock talking about. Um, there just seems to be something slightly off from how these top luxury houses would want to sell online. I don't know how to put it, but the luxury houses historically have loved to control every aspect of their distribution and conceding that to Farfetch just feels like there is a bit of a uh, there's going to be friction over time.
0: Yeah. I agree with that. It seems like they would want to control their entire experience. Um, if technology can. included, if they could,
1: maybe they can, maybe they've given up
0: at the same time, this gives them access to 3.8 million customers that they might not otherwise have.
1: And 1% of those, which 1% of 3.8 million would be what? 3,800 or
0: 38,000,
1: 38,000 of them are spending a boatload of money and that's their true clients. Yeah. So yeah. All right. Future growth opportunities. What do you got?
0: Mine's beauty. So they launched their beauty category in April. They talked about this a lot on the conference call. I think it's a pretty logical next step. Um, it'll it'll encourage more brands to join the platform, which in turn uh, encourages more customers to join the platform. And so far, they seem to have gotten pretty good buy-in from their existing brands. So a lot of their existing brands, the one I'm thinking of is Gucci, has not only their fashion line, but also their uh, sort of makeup lines and fragrances. And so uh, they said that, Uh, they highlighted three charlotte tilbury gucci fragrances and dr barbara Sturm. all joined and uh, uploaded a whole bunch of beauty related products Um, the other thing i'll say is this provides another channel to help with their advertising revenue they talked about this a lot on the conference call where they can get they have promotional spots i assume on the website that brands can pay for to have or uh, give maybe a higher take rate to uh far to have so uh just another channel for them to kind of grow into seems like a logical one are there any other tangential uh avenues that you think they they could add to the platform over time
1: I, if they already have non like like handbags and luggage and stuff uh, and jewelry which i believe they have all those um then this seems like the core stuff outside of cars. So I don't really yeah. think so. Because they have hats, they have they have shoes on stadium goods, and I believe a little bit on Farfetch on Farfetch as well.
0: I saw someone talking about they could uh they're not really the leader in watches, which seems to be like a big luxury market. And yeah. that's where some of their like highest uh ticket items have been
1: could be smart although apple seems to be kind of disrupting this industry which is tough
0: yeah i think it's different
1: these are like collector's items though true true that that part might not be as hurt as bad but i still think it's a threat when everyone in manhattan's wearing apple watches um all right i'll hit mine new guards group I like this strategy a lot to reiterate because it's a bit confusing. This is the subsidiary that owns a bunch of different brands or stakes in a bunch of different brands. Um, they love financial engineering and these complicated things. But these are brands like Off-White and Palm Angels. I really had no idea what any of them are, but uh, and it's I'd kind heard of I'd heard it. You, you hadn't heard of Off-White? I could care less about any of these things, but uh, I have no idea how popular any of this stuff is, but the strategy seems sound. They can provide some exclusivity to the far-fetched marketplace if these things continue to grow their own popularity among, say, younger consumers. Dare I say it helps kickstart a little momentum for a flywheel where you get all these consumers on and it just creates a bunch of demand um, uh, it's just one of the kind of aggregating strategies where, yeah, if you get okay, if you can only buy one of these New Guard products on Farfetch, it might create a customer for life, and those customers could be quite quite valuable.
0: All and right. those customers attract more brands. More mm-hmm. brands attract more customers.
1: Yeah, I, I don't like to. Yeah, you know the flywheel thing. Yeah, flywheel gets a tough uh, wrap, but in this case, eh, there's the potential. There's definitely a strong potential, and they seem to have kickstarted already. Highlights and Alois, what do you like and dislike about Farfetch? They
0: seem to be the leader in their industry, not only from uh, customers and a brand's standpoint, but in reading commentary from competitors, it sounds like they have technology that their the other marketplaces can't compete with. Um, all the a lot of their competitors also have purchased stakes in the company, which seems validating i guess um and then on top of it there's just secular tailwinds at their back i i don't see why a larger chunk of luxury spending over time can't go online it just seems logical i guess Uh, and then the lowlights for me i don't understand their derivatives book entirely um they also in the last quarter they added neiman marcus group which is pretty big as a customer to their solution side, and I think to their marketplace, Um, but they also invested $200 million in the group simultaneously, which they, they're not necessarily like flush with cash right now, which makes me feel like they did it just to attract them to the marketplace. Like they almost had to
1: buy it. And FPS, right? What do you mean? To have Neiman Marcus's DTC stuff be using FPS?
0: Yeah, they didn't say that they were using all of FPS solutions, but they added some of the FPS solutions. Hmm. Um, But I don't like the idea of having to pay $200 million to get companies to join the marketplace. And then someone asked about that on the conference call and basically said, like, some of our investors are worried that you're going to have to do this with every brand. They said, no, this is a one-time thing. We thought it would be a good opportunity to invest in Neiman Marcus group because our platform is going to unlock a lot of value for them. But it's like, won't, maybe, your, maybe. won't your platform theoretically unlock value for anyone that joins
1: May, Hey, Yeah. Well, uh, I think if you're an investor and fetch or thinking about it, you got to hold the hold their feet to the fire with those statements.
0: Yeah. So that, that just kind of threw me off. Um, it felt I don't know. Didn't feel great. And then on top of it, there's just a lot of short term problems going on right now, which
1: uh, China plus Russia. Yeah, not good.
0: But they are seeing good growth. And I guess this should be a highlight as well. They're seeing good growth in their core markets. And it is still just a really interesting business that I think should be able to generate strong margins if everything's going right
1: yeah they do like to hire a lot of people. I think they have over two thousand developers or technology staff, and I was like, mm, all right, you better have a technology advantage with all that um, All right, my highlights I think they have some emerging competitive advantages in the form of the network effect and the brand um, very very profitable industry in general, just luxury, and that has shown decades of long secular tailwinds so it's it's durable. You could have the quote unquote durable and competitive advantage here so that seems great. Not very many companies have that potential. Um, They've been the clear winner in this niche so far, and they are aligned with the industry leaders, which again, those all seem, you know, check, check, check. Lowlights, part of the strategy to me seems very messy and poorly planned. Um, I don't know if it's just a shotgun strategy and they're just going to figure it out and some of the things are going to be huge winners and some of them are just going to fall away. But man, they like to do a ton of stuff. Uh, the China exposure creates a bit of uncertainty, although it's not too bad, especially at the current price. And I don't have much confidence in management's capital allocation.
0: I've got another low light related to China. The recent comments... Um,
1: the CCP's comments? CCP about,
0: comments about wealth inequality and trying to bring rein that back in.
1: They don't want Does to do that. that they, they don't want, yeah, that's negative. That's true. It that seems like a better. huge
0: negative... For yeah. high income spenders on the platform,
1: well, it's a big negative. I don't even think it's a negative for spending. It's a negative for spending on quote unquote frivolous stuff like luxury. They want to, and this is what you're reading. And I, I I'm not in the CCP's meeting rooms, but uh, what the the stuff that's come out has said that they want to, they don't want to repeat the quote unquote failures of the West and having people just frivolously spending on luxury items, which that doesn't seem very. Uh, bullish. However, Chinese people love luxury products. Yeah. It's a growing uh, growing
0: market so far.
1: Yeah. uh, That's the fastest growing market in luxury. Um, Let's see. So yeah, uh, the last one here, I don't really have confidence in management's capital allocation. Yeah. The track record as a public company is a little short, so it's hard to tell. Maybe it could in the future, but when we're looking at a company we'd like to ask the question, how confident are we that management will act rationally With the cash that is given to them, basically the cash that the company generates, I'm not sure the answer is positive here for Farfetch. So that's a big low light for me because that's a key question Um, because a company can generate so much cash if they just burn it on dumb stuff like AR ventures, then, well, (laughs) you're actually not generating that cash for shareholders.
0: Yeah, it it feels weird and maybe this is a lot of like, it just happened to be timing, but It feels weird for them to have spent the $200 million in Neiman Marcus, the acquisition for the AR stuff in a quarter when it probably would have been in the best interest to rein in expenses. Um, I don't know. They're just plowing through their cash pile. And it isn't like if their cash burn from the last quarter persisted, they would have like three quarters of cash.
1: Yeah. Some of that could have been working capital. Uh, I can't remember exactly. Inventories
0: I mean. did g- rise by a but
1: lot. is a part of the business. So yeah, we'll see. This is one where I like, okay, they can get to 25% adjusted EBITDA margins. But does that mean 0% true free cash flow margin or 0% growth of free cash flow per share? Possibly. All right. Bull case. What do you think, Ryan?
0: China comes back soon as like a uh, good growth for them in GMV. I don't think, I think we could probably say goodbye to the Russian market. I don't think that surprises anyone. Um,
1: they don't need it. They the don't surprise, it. you don't know Russia.
0: No, you don't. Um, and they're able to get back to high. So I would say mid teens to high teens, at least double digit GM or GMV growth. I don't know why I added double digits. Historically they've targeted 30% revenue growth CAGR. That's what they said on the conference call. That's what they try to aim for. Um, If they're able to reach high teens, mid-teens GMV growth, I would assume revenue per share growth is going to be a a little less, maybe low teens to 10% because of the dilution. And then I think they'll be able to reach double-digit cash flow margins. This is the the bullish thought process for me speaking. Um, If those things happen over the next five years, this will be a good investment. I, I don't think a lot. I don't think the expectations are that high right now.
1: No, if, they're pretty low because no one believes they can generate true cash.
0: Right. Yeah. So I don't know. You've you put some numbers down here.
1: Yeah, Why let me get some numbers. Them? So if they do 10% revenue per share growth, which feels doable, 10% free cash flow margins, and then they, uh, five years from now, they will get to a free cash flow per share of $0.78 cents at a 20X multiple, which I think that's reasonable. That is a share price of $15.60. Current price is $9.13. Seems fairly doable.
0: Yeah. I would say that 10% revenue per share could be much higher as well if things go right.
1: Yes, exactly. There is definite upside there. All right. Bear case.
0: Uh, they burn through their cash pile, have to raise money again. Can't get Good terms.
1: There were some interesting things I didn't read the details on on the convertible notes, but there's something about Alibaba and Tencent owns some. Uh,
0: yeah, they're there, involved as well.
1: The, there was an ability to like
0: call them whenever they want.
1: Yeah, something like that. Uh, yeah, there was a lot yeah. of paragraphs that, frankly, for an so deep dive, I wasn't going to read about the debt, but yeah, there are some things to watch out for with
0: that. I also think a realistic scenario is that they get acquired by someone, mm. whether that's a big luxury company or um even Alibaba.
1: yeah interesting interesting potential there the a lot of the luxury houses have been talking about i read some new york times article it could be relevant now but it was a few years ago about the luxury houses wanted to have a neutral internet platform so i wonder if one house acquiring them would be like uh not something everyone's agreed upon and that sounds kind of like a cartel. I guess luxury houses are a bit like a cartel, but yeah, it's definitely a strategic asset for a lot of these companies, potentially.
0: Yeah, I agree. What's your bear case?
1: I think the easiest one without even doing any numbers, are they investing in too many things with no sense of return on investment? They have Beauty, Neiman Marcus, Augmented Reality, the China joint venture, discussions with Richmond over FPS, the new guards roll up strategy fulfillment. That's a lot of things to balance. Uh, Are they really, do they have the eye on the ball and all these things? Uh, I don't know. Also dilution. Dilution is pretty clear. It's been bad. I think that's the only, that's one of the things I think we covered it last time. We didn't understand it as well. I think the thing we did understand last time is that dilution was coming. um, And yeah, it's been bad so far, even over the last year. Yeah. Uh,
0: All right. More or less interested.
1: I'm going to go more interested because given the valuation, if the balance sheet worries clear up and this may, the the opportunity may be gone by this point, if the balance sheet worries clear up and they start generating cash, then it's definitely on my watch list because it seems like a very promising strategy. I agree. It's a large market. A lot of potential here would not be surprised if this was a uh, large cap stock in the future. What about you, Ryan?
0: Yeah, I agree. I'm more interested. I know we sounded a little critical throughout this episode and a lot of that was balance sheet related. And some of this stuff might not even be, a lot of the balance sheet stuff might not be um, malevolent.
1: It's just potential to be malevolent.
0: It just felt, I guess, they weren't very transparent about what it was, um, and there was a lot of vague terms in the quarterly uh, shareholder letter, which, if you're not going to go to any length to explain it, it makes me a little, um, I guess, critical. With that said, the, this seems like a really sound business, and it seems like they're winning and growing in, in, all, their, uh, in all the markets that are actually functioning properly. They're they growing.
1: Yeah. I guess the other thing is the other thing that's holding me back is I believe management could be burning a lot of the cash, potential value in cash that they're generating for shareholders on dumb stuff.
0: Yeah. I guess here's another question. Think about the Neiman Marcus one. Is it that bad to invest in those companies if they can theoretically accelerate sales on your platform? Like it's almost like a customer acquisition cost that could go up
1: there. Yeah. There's a lot of potential with the investment, but it's a bit tricky. So there's a bit of a leverage on your success there. If you kind of get what I mean.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's just
1: messy. A lot of mess, a lot of mess. All right. Yeah. Stock for next week. I don't think we have one, but let me just get the lineup. Next week, we're recording with Brad on Lululemon. And then after that, Ryan, you've already chosen Charter Communications just because of the. With Ian gone, we had the whole change up in uh, the recording schedule for who will be on which episodes. So we already have two in the books. So I don't think we have to choose one because after we do Charter, Charter's uh, next episode for this. Then it'll be my choice. And I don't. It'll be three weeks from now. So let's just wait. Sounds good. All right. That's going to do it for this episode. Make sure to give us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It takes five seconds. Remember, we are not financial advisors. Anything we say on the show is not formal advice or recommendation. We are general partners at Arch Capital. Arch Capital clients may hold securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time.